just need to try and clarify here because on the one hand, one of you I think is saying I am more than my neurons. <clears throat> the other saying I am my body. The first might be suggesting um, that uh, we describing ourselves as purely uh, neurons is neither entertaining nor meaningful and that in order to glean that meaning um, through fiction, um, describing ourselves as more than our neurons is important and we may actually never be able to explain things like motives or moral action purely synaptically. Um, and I think then the other is saying actually uh, until and unless we claim that we are our body, um, maintaining health is untenable and perhaps even that the narrative instinct interrupts, interrupts that claim, mm. divides us. Mm. So actually, is that a reasonable summary of where you're both at? I'm not sure if I've got yours entirely right, Charles, but you correct me if I'm wrong. I think I'm undecided. <laughs> but I've got here Charles's ambivalence scribbled yeah, down, but, but I, I didn't feel I could say that. <laughs> That's why I'm so interested in this topic as a scientist, but also as a writer. I think we've got a lot of work to do to find out whether these explanations work for us, whether they exhaust our experience, whether they do justice to the richness of our experience. And all I can say is that I put, you know, as, as a writer, what you're doing, you, you're kind of doing engineering, if you like. You're building a prototype and you're sticking it in a wind tunnel and you're seeing what the force is do to shape and, and seeing how it stands up under those, under those pressures. Uh, my character in this novel is drawn back, without giving the plot away, she is drawn back to an understanding of herself that is more at the person level. Okay, so if you like, she rediscovers herself, a self, through those experiences. Now that's not to say that it's wrong, you know, that materialism can't account for everything. And it's not to say, it's not to call it either way, really. Um, and I think, I think, I honestly think I'm undecided about, um, but I think it's a conversation we need to have. And as I say, I think fiction is a very powerful tool for, have, for having that debate. Thank you. But Tim, you, my reading of your book was actually, and I don't know quite how this is squared with where you are as a writer now, was actually the realisation, and we were talking about metaphoric frames of ways of understanding the world, that you were, this, this drive, this necessity to narrate, observe and explain w was actually destructive. Yeah. There's too much to talk about. Um, I'd, I'd like, I'd like to, to face that, the, that dichotomy question first. It, it seems extraordinary to me that one should, should be a concern uh, and, and ambivalent between worlds of a so-called materialistic interpretation and another interpretation, what, what on earth would that interpretation be? Um, it, it, the world, the world is, is made up of, of things. Um, to call them material is, is in, in some way to have them fail the test of being like us. Um, material is obviously infinitely more interesting than we thought. Um, and, and that's it. 
there isn't a thing out there which does not fit in the material uh, world. It's just that we don't know how to measure it or how to deal with it. Um, the question of whether we'll understand, I deeply suspect not, because the thing we have to understand is the thing looking at the thing at the thing. So um, science notoriously enjoys having a level platform on which to operate and standing outside it with plastic gloves. Um, but the thing is ourselves, and, and, and you can't do that. So th th that's, my, that's my feeling on that position, that I have no problem at all thinking that, that everything that there is, however bizarre the phenomenon, that the dog aware that I'm coming, everybody knows that the dog is aware that, that you're coming home. <laughs> we just know that. The dog is not spending his days thinking about quantum mechanics or even worrying about his mortgage. The dog is totally locked into a world of perception. All his senses are infinitely heightened beyond, beyond anything that we can imagine. He lives in a world of, of pleasure beyond, beyond anything we know. Uh, I envy dogs greatly. Um, and, and of course he knows when we're coming home because, because there's physical stuff going on which is part of the material world and he's getting those signals. To talk a moment about words and narrative, um, I don't know how many times we heard this morning somebody say this is what distinguishes us from the animal world, indicating this constant desire to distinguish ourselves and this kind of sense of pride. Certainly one of the things that, for better or worse, does distinguish ourselves, us is a high, this highly, highly developed use of language. It is language that allows us to live in an abstract space away from the present moment. We have a future tense and a past tense. Um, we can project things. We can talk about things in other places where we are not. Um, and, and all this fills our brains to the point that other skills that maybe were once developed um, are, kind of, are kind of blocked out. Uh, and, and I think I think that that can be dangerous, you know. It can be dangerous to become totally wired into language. And we can see now with the various people in, in the audience with the, their iPhones and the text messages and that, that life is, is becoming a constant verbal back and forth that, that blots out other areas of experience. And I think this is something for novelists uh, to take into account. Narrative is also, also always a trap. You start telling a story, and the story becomes, uh, first, the notion that there is an ego, that it does live, that it has a trajectory, and then that I have to have a trajectory of the same intensity in order to be a valuable person. So, so narrative can be very dangerous. Um, yeah, that's enough about all that. I just want to respond yes. to that point yes. about materialism. I, I'm interested in a particular kind of materialism, which is neuromaterialism. Can you both just say what you mean by materialism? Just that everything... Well, there is nothing more than matter. That we are just—we we don't amount to anything more than the sum of our neurons and our other physical, physiological processes. Now, I'm, I'm particularly interested in this fascination, this obsession with the brain, with the nervous system. Of course, we're not mm. just this; we're also this, yeah. and we're this, and we're embodied, and we we interact with the world. And and lots of what's going on in in cognitive science at, at the moment is about the way that operating this within mm. this gives you a whole load of stuff that you, you wouldn't otherwise have. But at the same time, there's this popular um, appetite for this and leaving it leaving yeah. aside the other stuff. So Actually, terribly funny when you talked about... I did see that article in the New York Times 
about narrative and emotions. Um, and it made one of the most incredibly elementary mistakes when it said, our pictures of, you know, our mapping of the brain shows that when we read about love or when we read about torture, we have the same feelings. And you say, no, you don't have the same feelings. When you read a book, you do not feel you are being tortured, you know. You might have some but but it's really not the same. So if their photographs show that it is the same, they've still got a lot of work to do, you know. Um, because it's really... When you're reading a book, you, you're not in love, um, and, and so on and so forth. However, to go back to what you said about materialism, again, I can't understand why you say just matter. I can't understand why you say only the sum of its parts. What else could we possibly be? We're here. It's all here. Obviously, we know that, as, as was explained this morning, and that there is a strong school that be believes that consciousness is shared, um, but again, so that's the material. Do that again for me. Obviously, this morning. Just oh, you heard Rupert. Uh, um, oh, right. Yes. No, yeah, no. Yeah. Uh, yes, Rupert, it was Rupert, Rupert talking about shared consciousness right. in the sense that 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 my consciousness is not locked in my head, but but an exchange between me and the rest of the world. Okay, that there are physical things going on, neurons coming into okay, my eyes okay. and so on. Yeah. But pe people do also talk about there being other stuff in terms of there's a spirit or they're, they, they're they dualists. Do, yeah. They think there's a, the mind is a separate kind of quality. Dave Chalmers, who came up with the idea of the hard problem, is mm. a kind of dualist, at least mm. in, in, in that No, no, book. people do talk about it, but, but it, it seems to me first that this, this is just a measure of fear of, of, of that we participate entirely in this. I mean, are, are there really spiritual things then that we won't find that they can be measured and that they... I mean, so what are they? Um, so just fear of... But if, even if we go, we go back to the question of everything's inside my head and so on. And so just, so just, to, just to press you on that, so when you say it's a measure of fear, what, what do you think it's a fear of? It, it's a, it, it, it is an atavistic fear that we are, that we are part, of, that we are an animal that, that, that is born, lives and dies. And that's it. And if we can extrapolate the notion that there is something not explained in our expla explanations of the material world, we can nurse the illusion of projecting ourselves into some. It's terribly interesting to look at Christianity's relationship with the body there. At the beginning, Christianity says, when you die, you go to heaven, but later you will be united with your body because they felt a certain embarrassment about an identity existing without a body. And so they, they posited this idea that your body had to be buried whole so that it could then be, okay? And then you can see through the centuries that that is gradually dropped and now the church doesn't make a very big deal about being reunited with your body because now we have this paradigm where we're not our bodies, so. Charles, you were just, at the start, you were asking a question about what you're trying to work out, what it is that attracts huge numbers of the population towards um, the pursuit of these uh, neuromaterialist, quite increasingly popular worldviews. I mean, might Tim's uh, mooting uh, a fear almost of mystery, uncertainty, and human finitude. Do you, might that? Do you think that in any way that might prompt those kinds of worldviews being desirable? I'm trying to struggle to yeah. see how they would, because in fact, what they're pursuing there is a sort of material account. <coughs> is there a kind of mastery within it of our fate? Uh, but I think that this, this comes back to the point I was trying to make about what I called negative capability. 
neuromaterialism gives us a way of still being us, still being ourselves, because the boundaries of that universe of knowledge are so distant, we're so mm. far away from having that mm. account of that neuroscientific account of consciousness, but we can still believe that it is out there somewhere, somewhere, as, as Perón mm. says in, in Saturday, that yes. it is out there somewhere and we will find it one day. There's a paradox in what Perrone says in that passage because he also says the wonder will remain. And I want to say to him, how do you know the wonder will, will remain yes. once we've got to the end of the story? How do you know you will still give a damn? How do you know that you'll still feel a sense of awe that matter can support consciousness? But that's a, that's a kind of beside the point. There's something about this story about 80 billion neurons that seems to allow for the richness and the difference between people. I can be myself knowing that it's some special combination and configuration of those neurons that makes me what I am and I'll never be Tim, I'll never be you. So it gives me space to be who I am but at the same time I can hang on to, 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 to the materialist point of view which, you know, science is telling is, is, is selling us. And I, you know, as a scientist I, I, I don't think there's anything more. I don't think there's spirit. I don't think there's a separate entity. I think this is it. And what, what neuromaterialism gives us is something where we can still be ourselves because, it's, because there's that 80 billion. There's so much damn complexity. Timmy, yeah, I get, can I just say that, that the oldest forms of Buddhism offer exactly this material vision of the world, mm. a world split into atoms, mm. atoms and mm. made up of massive complexity, of a self created with nine separate parts that are in relationship to each other with nobody in control. I mean, a, a, a the oldest forms of Buddhism seem exactly in line with... But, but the, one of the interesting things that, that was get, getting said there was, was when you said, and this is so true, that they consider it knowledge only when they've measured it on some machine. Um, I was talking to a scientist who was working with meditation. Like they, they were trying to show that meditation actually does work. Um, and he was talking for a very long time um, about all the things they'd measured, although I don't think I could meditate with bits stuck in me. Uh, anyway, I said to him at the end, have you ever meditated? And he said, no. <laughs> so, well, you know, it's, it's terribly easy to see if meditation works. You know, you, you actually do it, you know. Um, I, and you can imagine, you can imagine somebody giving a very sophisticated description of what happens to your body when you have sex. But, but a, an adolescent who's had sex knows an awful lot more about sex than, than the person who's, who's measured everything if, if they haven't done it. Mm. So, so it, it is interesting that they no longer consider knowledge, um, and in fact it very quickly got dismissed as anecdotal in certain situations this morning. My, my experience. Um, mm. I.e., so the suggestion there almost is that something does not become knowledge and therefore, you know, true, unless it's measurable. Prior to that, you know, it'll be construed as simply belief. Well, there are hi hierarchies of knowledge. I think this is what, <laughs> is what has been shown to us. Neuro-truth trumps psychological truth. Mm. And, I, and I, I get very annoyed when people... This happens in the States all the mm. time. I get called a neuroscientist. I'm not a neuroscientist. I've done very little work studying the brain. I've studied psychology. I've studied psychological processes. I've studied mind and behaviour. But they... This, this rush to the neuro is even dis blurring disciplinary boundaries. A psychologist goes to the States and is called a neuroscientist. And of course, it's no, it's no surprise that, you know, it's no coincidence that these 
ridiculous op-eds happening in the New York Times. There's a greater appetite over the pond for these stories, even than there is here. So? I, I wouldn't really know. I, th I think the desire there, though, is, is quite clearly to have that kind of knowledge which mm. is infinitely reproducible for every unit that is a human being. Mm. Um, and, and, of course, that kind of knowledge is, is terribly, terribly useful. And, and one, one but there's also a kind of knowledge which is my knowledge of my illness and how I have learned to deal with it and the experiences that I, that I have had, which as far as I am concerned, I'm not going to try and sell it to anybody else. They can all find their own solution. But, but as far as I'm concerned, in the hierarchy of knowledge, that, that knowledge is actually terribly important. Yes. And, and what I would say is that if, we, if we're conscious of this hierarchy, hierarchy of knowledges, Anybody who wants to understand human experience has got to work at those different levels of explanation. We need a neuro account, we need a molecular account, we need a genetic account, we also need a psychological account, and we need a social account, and we need a cultural account. We need the whole lot. We cannot say we're taking the right approach until all of those things and to, uh, are coming together. And to me, that's what interdisciplinarity means, yes. and it's what the medical humanities yes. means to me. And I think those, those themes of the generalised versus the particular will co come out in our... Next conversation. Just before we go on to questions, then your your statement, "I am my body," Tim, is almost is not so much one of stating that as a way of explaining things, so much as just stating it as a point of existential fact and recognition of your mortality. Well, I I don't even want to enter into the question of of, of fact or not fact. It is quite clear that I could live imagining that. The, the constant generation of an ego in my head can keep denying, you know, that, that it has any identity with my body. Or I can live another way where I constantly ex explore my body and the connections between the emotions I'm having and, and the feelings on the skin. Certainly one of the curiosities when you do do 10 days of total silence and, and this simple constant exploration of the body is you actually begin to identify things like the way fear feels on, on your skin. So I can say I'm not my body or I can say I am my body. There are two different ways of, of living and, and that's all I really need to know. I don't, you know. I'm not worried about then the epistemology of that. Uh, I would also say that a missing piece here is the social. So I don't know how this fits in with sitting on your own for 10 days. <laughs> But, you know, I think there's, uh, to a large extent, babies become conscious in the way that they're conscious because other people treat them as being mm. conscious. And so I might be this massive concatenation of atoms, but I'm sitting next to another massive oh, concatenation oh. of atoms, and we're doing something pretty amazing between us, and then we're in larger groups and in cultural groups and, and so on. So that's where that, that, that extra complexity mm. comes in for me, but also the need for those multiple levels of explanation. Can I, can, can I just say, you're so right to say that, um, when I started all this process, I would never have accepted to meditate and certainly never have gone to a retreat, and it was only a lot of encouragement for somebody else. When I got there, the extraordinary thing is the difference between doing this fairly rudimentary relaxation process on your own and sitting with a group of people for 10 days and eating with them in silence um, and very, very slowly, all my, my normally, um, I, I don't usually like people a lot. I mean, I, I, 
I, I am a misanthropist, but, but very, very slowly that dissolves and, and you begin to realize that particularly if it happens to you to not be at the beginning of a session, but to walk into a session when it's going on, you realize that, there, you know, that words like an energy and so on and so forth, however new age and that might sound, are absolutely credible uh, to register the experience I'm having being part of this group, yeah.